Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host. We've had some exciting guests in the last five months since our broadcast and we're so grateful you're coming back today to invest some time with today's guest. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to tell you what's coming up in the future. We have a fantastic pipeline of interviews coming. We have a couple of guests we're inviting back. Corey Kogan, who was here a couple of months ago talking about the five choices to extraordinary productivity. She'll be back talking again around how do you prioritize your top initiatives, goals, things that are most important to you in the whirlwind of our daily schedule. She is really a renowned expert on personal productivity and time management. We also have Randy Illig, I-L-L-I-G, who is Franklin Covey's top thought leader on sales performance. How do you inspire the behaviors you need in your sales force, not just to drive increased revenue for you, but also to help make sure that your clients get the most out of their investment with you. Randy also authors one of the best articles, I think, on the web, on Forbes.com. If you haven't seen his articles, Google Randy Illig, I-L-L-I-G, and look for his articles on Forbes.com. We also have, in the coming weeks, Karen Dillon, who is a prolific author and one of Clayton Christensen's co-authors, and she's also the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. So look forward to some great episodes coming for On Leadership. Now, today I'm excited to have back our first guest, the guest we have had on our first program, Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of the renowned and influential book, Speed of Trust. Stephen, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you. It's a reprise appearance. Well, I tell you what, I love this On Leadership series. Let's have you back every 20th episode, <laughs> right? There's lots to talk about. Yeah. I'm excited to also announce that just in the last few weeks, you um, updated and reissued The Speed of Trust. It's right. sold over now 2 million copies, and you work with your publisher, Simon & Schuster, on a new version, both in hardcover and a paperback. Hmm. Tell us what's new about the blue edition of it. Yeah, well, this is... The updated edition, right. and the, the the content is fundamentally the same. The structure of the speed of trust, the same. You the, still believe in trust. Still believe in the trust. Behaviors are the same. Same behaviors, same uh, credibility dimensions. The five waves, but what we did was we updated the data, the examples, the stories, the anecdotes, to just be even more fresh, more relevant, more current. And then I also uh, submitted a, a, an afterword. Mm -hmm of really 10 reasons why trust is more relevant today than it was when I first published this in yeah. 2006. Yeah. Because when I published it in 2006, it was, trust was re relevant then. But today, in today's world, it's become even more relevant than ever before. And I wanted to get that point across in, in, as to our readers as to why that mattered. I mean, 12 years since you wrote this book, and it still continues to be a phenomenal bestseller. I watched the list, and in fact, you just it, it achieved a, a ranking that I thought was really exciting. Tell us about the the uh, keynote you gave at Glassdoor and the connection with Glassdoor. Yeah, yeah. Well, the keynote actually was with Zoom. Zoom. Sorry. But what had happened is the uh, Zoom CEO Eric Juan was rated the uh, number one CEO on Glassdoor. On Glassdoor. I see. And and um, and so he he uh, it was asked what's your favorite book to recommend to anyone? And he said, The Speed of Trust. And, and, and what was interesting is his reasoning why. And he said, look, Zoom is a startup. I mean, they were founded in 2011. And, and um, that the only basis on which they can compete is on speed. They just, they're not bigger than people. Mm -hmm. They have to be faster than people. And, and uh, you know, 
as, as Klaus Schwab said at the World Economic Forum, he said that today it's not the, sm the big fish that, that beats the small fish, it's the fast one that beats the slow. Yeah. And that's Zoom. They move fast. He yeah. says you can't have speed without trust. Right. And it's kind of a validation of the speed of trust. So that, to him, was very exciting. And then Glassdoor kind of uh, summarized what they felt. They interviewed a whole bunch of CEOs, and they came out with the top That's books cool. that CEOs should yeah. read, and they had Speed of Trust there at Number the Number one, amazing. You yeah. deserve it. 12 years after the book's been published, <clears throat> and not a week goes by where I don't see something, either digital or print, where a, a, a C-level person is referencing your book. Just a few weeks ago, I think it was the Times or the, the Journal, they were interviewing, I think it was the CIO of Cisco Systems. Yeah. And in the interview, they asked him, what his favorite book was, and he mentioned The Speed of Trust as well. It's as relevant today as it was when he wrote it 10 years ago, 12 years yeah. ago. Yeah, I hope so. I and think it, well, so. I think it's true. And there, there's kind of <clears throat> 10 reasons in the afterword you wrote around why the content is so important in, in organizations. You talk a bit about the kind of the, the world we're in of declining trust. Yeah. Without depressing us too much, let's, let's, <laughs> let's embrace that. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's our reality. Um, it's, a, it's a low trust world. And, it, and, and um, we see it in, in our institutions, you know, trust in media, trust in government, trust in political parties, some, trust in NGOs even going down, trust in business. In some cases, it's never been lower than it is today. And it's, it's different in different parts of the world, but generally we're seeing it going down. The Edelman Trust Barometer for 2018 said this is the, the year of distrust because there's such a decline of trust around the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what's important to recognize is this that in a low trust world, the danger of that is that it tends to perpetuate itself because we all become a little bit more careful, more cautious, more guarded, because none of us want to get burned, and then people respond. Which doesn't drive speed. No, right. no, and so we become more careful, people respond back more careful, cautious, guarded, and here's what happens, Scott. We find ourselves perpetuating a vicious downward cycle of distrust and suspicion, creating more distrust and suspicion, and everyone feeling justified in the process because they want to protect themselves. And it's dangerous, and, and it doesn't increase speed or, or, or cost. Instead, what happens is it tends to just drain and exhaust people, teams, cultures, organizations, and, and also- Through fear, right, and excessive fear. deliberation. That's right, and, and so it's, it's a vicious downward cycle. We gotta counteract it. And, and we have to be proactive. We have to take conscious, deliberate steps to counteract the distrust yeah. of our world. Yeah. And the great thing is that if you as a leader have the ability to create high trust in a low trust world, what an advantage that is for you. Right. What if your company is in a low trust industry? What if you could become the high trust player in a low trust industry? It differentiates you. Huge differentiator. Yeah. You cut through all yeah. the noise and the clutter. Right. It's a huge advantage. So it's a low trust world, and that actually puts a greater premium on why we got to get good at building trust mm -hmm. in a world of declining trust. In, in these 10 concepts you write in the <clears throat> afterword of the new book, you also share, though, that in the new shared economy, trust is more important than ever. Talk about that. Well, the whole idea of the sharing economy is based upon reputation. Yeah. Brand, what's that? Trust, credibility. And reputation is a way to measure the credibility, a snapshot of it. It's a reputation economy. And the key measurable there is trust. Mm -hmm. And so in this kind of economy where people look at the credibility of the brand, the reputation of you, your team, your organization, then that is a trust snapshot. And so it puts, a, again, a greater premium on the need to stand for something and have a reputation around it and to be seen as credible. And it's interesting because if you look at the some of the 
uh, like the reputation quotient index that comes out. And you look at some of the high companies on that list with you know, great reputations with the marketplace. I find that so often you'll find a corresponding high reputation with their own mm -hmm. workplace. For example, Wegmans. They were number two on the reputation quotient index. Mm -hmm. So with great trust with customers. They're also number two on the 100 best companies to work for, which is right. great trust with their Those workforce. aren't a coincidence, right? A That's coincidence. a deliberate investment in their culture. It's inside out. Yeah. And the only way you're going to sustain trust externally with the marketplace, your reputation, your brand, is if you also have trust internally with your workplace. Mm -hmm. It's incongruent to ask people who you don't trust to go build trust with customers. Stephen, as you look, and you consult with a lot of companies around the world, when you, when you find brands that have had a stumble, right, and the perception is that they've had some scandal or breach of trust, do you find that it's often pervasive in the organization and the leaders knew about it, or it was in a pocket and the leaders were really trying to establish a great culture, but one division kind of lost its way? Any insight there? Well, you see some of both. I mean, there are times where there's some rogue players, <laughs> some right. rogue divisions, and people that, that, uh, that lose their way mm -hmm. and, or get trapped into counterfeit behavior or intentionally go down a bad path. That yeah. does happen occasionally. And, and, uh, and there's probably other situations where you might have leaders complicit in the whole thing. You, I mean, you know, we see all kinds see of different all. scandals. Yeah. But, but the, the important point is that if a company or a leader does lose their way, is it possible to regain it, restore the trust? Is that possible? And I'm a little bit of, of a maverick on this because there's many people that would say, no, you know, once you've lost trust, it's like a shattered glass, you mm. can never put it back together. Mm. And I'll acknowledge that there might be times and situations where that's the case, where you might not be able to restore trust because of the very nature of the loss of trust is so egregious. Mm. You, know, you know, Bernie Madoff would have had a hard time restoring trust right. today were he alive because right. right. it's so egregious. And, and, and then you may not have an opportunity to restore trust because it takes two. Mm. You know, you might be willing, but the other party may not be, or the public, the marketplace. Um, or the nature of the relationship might just be transactional, you don't get an opportunity. Sure. Having said all that, I believe in most situations it's possible to restore it, to regain it, if people are willing to behave their way back into it. Mm -hmm. And you know the expression, my father used to say it all the time, you can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. And, and um, so if we've lost people's trust, words alone won't get it back. The only way to get it back is to behave your way back into trust. Yeah. But that is my affirmation, is that, no, you can't talk your way out, but you can behave your way out. Of, of distrust and back into trust if you're willing. Both organizationally and individually. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. it's not easy, but it's possible, and that's hopeful because in a low trust world, if you couldn't behave your way back into trust, we'd all be circling the drain. Do you find that people tend to be fairly forgiving <clears throat> of others who've breached trust with them if they find someone, I'm guessing, generally tries to behave their way back into a trustworthy reputation? I think generally, yes, unless, unless it's a pattern. Mm -hmm. If it's a pattern, then at some point it's disingenuous. Suspicion, yeah, That's right. 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 But if, if, it's, if it's basically, if someone makes a mistake and, and then they, they confront the reality, they made the mistake, they take responsibility for it versus blaming, they right the wrong, and it might include apology, might include a rest, you know, making restitution, making whole, they then clarify expectations going forward of what they're gonna do to regain that person's trust, and then when they do what they say they're going to do, mm -hmm. I find that yes, that many people, if not most, 
will allow them the chance to behave their way back into trust if they're sincere about it. You know, it's not a, a strategy you can count on because not everyone will allow that, but yes, it's, it's, it's possible. And it's actually inspiring that, that, that that's possible. In you know, when a business does this and they make a mistake with a customer, you can call it a service recovery, where your service recovery can be so extraordinary, mm -hmm. you could actually re Eclipses not only restore the, the trust, yeah, yeah go to a higher channel. level. Yeah. Talk about the workforce and, and your 10 points in the new version around why trust is more relevant today than when you wrote it. You talk about the, the demographic shift in the workforce. We, we've seen arguably around the world this massive retirement of baby boomers and traditionalists, great for them, yeah. and that the workforce now is you know, a, a sea shift, if you will, of millennials and Gen X. Why do you think trust is so relevant to the demographic shift of the workforce? Yeah. Well, it is a multi-generational workforce, more than ever before. It's going to continue. In fact, the Deloitte study shows that by 2020, 50% of the workforce will be millennial. And, and what they're looking for, the data shows, is they value an open, transparent, collaborative leadership style in, in, in which they can trust their leader and they feel trusted by their leader. And I'll tell you what, um, when they don't feel trusted, they'll go someplace else. And you know, people are saying, how do we retain millennials? They just move around, jump around. Well, you know, the number one thing you can do, build a high trust culture and workforce and, and trust them. Mm -hmm. I like to put it this way. Millennials don't want to be managed. They want to be led. They want to be inspired. They want to be trusted. And I would say not just millennials. Honestly, we all do. That's right. right. We don't want to be managed, we want to be led. We want to be inspired and trusted. And, and to be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. It brings out the best in all of us. It not only attracts us and retains us and engages us, it inspires us. And that's what we want and need in today's world. And so how are we going to you know, navigate a world in, with multiple generations? Go with the common element that appeals to everyone, that inspires everyone. And that is a, a style of leadership of trust and inspire versus command and control. It's the new type of leadership that's needed today in a, a world filled with multiple generations. We've got we've to shift the whole leadership approach. Stephen, talk about the role that trust plays in organizational <clears throat> culture. You're beyond uh, reading and writing and coaching and interviewing. You spend a lot of your time in the C-suite with boards of directors, C-level people. Do you find that the C-suite is as invested in the culture of an organization as you hear training in HR and L&D talk about, and you read about in articles. Do you, do you find that the CEOs, the thousands that you work with every year and such, are they as invested and in touch with the role that culture plays and the role that trust plays in building a culture, not just to attract talent, but to retain talent? Or is, it, is, it, is there a disconnect there at all? You know what, increasingly they are, more and more. I'm sure there's some that aren't, but Culture is back in vogue, <laughs> and it never right. should have fallen out. Right, right. And, and uh, it is, it's back in vogue, it's hot, people are aware of it increasingly, and for some it may be a, a fad, a trend, but hey, I'm glad that they're talking about it again because they never should have stopped talking about it. And, and so people are talking about it, and the thing about culture is that you'll never change the culture until you change the behavior. And that's what trust is all about. Yeah. Behavior that builds trust. And behavior of the trust. leaders first. The behavior of the leaders first. Right. And then to model the behavior for their organization that will build the trust. 
and the confidence. And that's how you'll change a culture is by changing the behavior. So I love the fact that culture is back in vogue and that people are aware of it and mindful of it because that's what is putting a greater premium on the need for a high trust culture. Just yesterday I was with a, um, a big chemical company and their whole focus is on how can we build a culture of trust and transparency and simplicity in order to drive the results that we need today. And, and, and they recognize that this can't just be platitudes and words, it has to drive down into the behavior. And until it gets into the behavior, nothing will really change. And so I'm very encouraged by kind of the reemergence of culture in, in the lexicon and in, in the you know, mindset of the CEO. I think that's critical. And I would think it would be here to stay beyond being in vogue because as in our world, as everything becomes replicable, right? Patents, trademarks, yeah. supply chain, what you can't replicate is a company's culture. And that's why people stay, I think. I think you're attracted to a firm because of the culture. And what I read is that people quit their leaders and they quit their company culture. So I would think that any C-suite person watching this interview would be super mindful that if you want to retain your talent that are constantly being poached by your competitors, one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that they love working for you and with you. Absolutely. And they trust you. They, they trust you and, and that you trust them and they, and they feel like the culture is one in which they're allowed to take a risk, make a mistake, learn, grow, because people have your back. It, it's, a, it's a trust culture. And I'll tell you what, it energizes people. And, and there's hard data on this. If you look at uh, Paul Zak, the neuroscientist, his article on the neuroscience of trust for Harvard Business Review 2017, his data shows that high trust cultures are 106% more energized than low trust cultures. And they're 76% more engaged sure. with 72% less stress, 40% less burnout. So it's exactly what you, you said. I describe it as energy and joy. And you know, Speed of Trust initially focused on, on speed and cost, quantitative. My whole premise was yeah, right. to take this soft topic of right, trust right. and make it hard-edged, right. financial, economic, you can put a value on it. And I think that's an extraordinary um, way of looking at it because most people never think of trust as financial. Mm -hmm. And having said that, with all the great elements of the financials, still the greatest impact of trust is qualitative. And I like to highlight the quantitative because that's new, right. but the qualitative yeah. is unsurpassed. Your passion for this 12 years later is, is intoxicating, it's <laughs> contagious. Let's get practical. Okay. Because I think we all can appreciate philosophically the need to build a high trust culture, but leaders are responsible for building it and destroying it. In, in, in the new edition as well, of course, you talk about the 13 behaviors that are common to high trust leaders. In our first interview, you, we touched on a couple of those. Let's back it up a little bit okay. and talk about the, the, you call them the cores of credibility, right? The four cores of credibility. And, and when people go through the work session, when they bring the two-day work session to their company, they get the guidebook. They also get this handy deck of cards. Yeah. And you mentioned these four cores of credibility as really foundational to a person's um, you know, trust brand. Integrity, intent, capabilities, and results. Let's spend a minute on each of these four cores. Let's start with integrity. It says under the tagline, are you congruent? Uh, riff on integrity for a moment. Yeah. Well, this is the, the foundations, the roots. I use the metaphor of a tree. The roots, the trunk, the branches, the fruits. Those are the four cores. The roots is integrity. 
And it is what people think it is. It's honesty, it's truthfulness, and if I could put it in a summary, it's doing the right thing. And here's the thing about it, Scott. It takes humility to have integrity. It also takes courage. You have to be humble that there are principles out there that govern, and you have to have the courage to then do the right thing even when there's a cost or a consequence. I'd like to point out that it's relatively easy to do the right thing when it doesn't cost you anything. Hmm. Aha, the test of integrity is when there's a cost or a consequence. Hmm. What do I do then? That's the test, and until then, I haven't fully been tested. And, and um, I look at, at, at leaders and organizations that, that uh, say that they value doing the right thing, and then the test comes. What do they do then? And, and um, um, I saw uh, Devin Energy, um, and, and um, uh, John Rochelle's is the, uh, 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 that was the president at the time, um, and Larry Nicholas, the chairman, told this story about John Rochelle's, about how they had, they were um, uh, doing a deal with, and they had a, and they had a, they had a buyer, and, and then someone came in and offered more, but they'd already shook hands on the deal. Mm. It'd be very easy to kind of go to this other deal and, and say, well, gosh, that's a better deal, and we didn't really have a full deal here, but it was very clear what they were gonna do. They were gonna do the right thing, regardless of, of uh, what the cost, the consequence to it. And there was a very real cost and consequence. That's the test. When a leader does that, when an organization does that, they demonstrate that integrity. That's the roots of the tree, the foundation. And it's true of a leader, it's true of a team of an organization. Those are the roots, then they flow from your character. The first core is integrity. Mm -hmm. The second is intent. The card says, what's your agenda? Expand on that. Yeah. Well, that's what your intent is, is is uh, your motive and your agenda. So the agenda that best builds credibility and trust is when you seek mutual benefit. In seven habits language, we call that win-win. Mm -hmm. Mutual benefit, yeah, I wanna win, of course, but I want your win too. In fact, I want your win as much as I do my own. And that's the agenda that builds credibility and trust. But look, when you're seen as self-serving, as having an agenda, and I mean mine agenda, or a hidden agenda, mm -hmm. people won't trust you. Uh, Stephen, take that into a practical one-on-one -on -one relationship. I think one of the 13 behaviors that you mentioned is declare your intent, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, that's, that's one of the applications, applications of this intent. Yeah. yeah Talk about been... why that's so important in, a, in, a, in a, a leader's conversation with a team member where she or he's having a high-stakes, high-courage conversation. Why is it so important for the leader to declare their intent up front? Because when you declare your intent to another person, that is you tell them not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it. You're open, you're transparent, you, you declare yourself, you give the why. Here's, my, here's what I'm trying to do, here's why, here's my agenda here. I don't have a hidden agenda, I have an open agenda, I'm transparent. You know what that does, Scott? It gives people a new lens through which they view and interpret your subsequent behavior. They see you differently, they interpret you differently. Probably releases me from suspicion and, and, and thinking about what are all the many reasons why she could be doing this. That's right. With me, to me, for that's right, me. Because that's right, because that's kind of the point. When you don't declare intent, what do people do anyways? Make stuff up. They make stuff up. Assume, yeah. They assume it, yeah. they ascribe intent to you. Right. At best, they're guessing. Right. At worst, they're projecting fears, worst Especially case if it's, if it's something that might be negative, where I'm going to sometimes naturally think you must have some motive that's either yeah. self-serving Yeah, what's or, going on here? Right. As, you know, is, are they preparing to downsize? Are they right. preparing, they right. start to read all kinds of things into it. Declare your intent. 
Get the why behind the what. Open yourself up. Be transparent. Declare yourself. It's amazing. It's disarming to people. It's liberating to people. It's freeing. It gives them a new lens. They'll interpret you differently. Now, look, if there's low trust, it won't happen overnight. They might still wonder, you know, what's Scott's agenda here now <laughs> by declaring his intent, you know, if, if there's low trust. So it might take some time to kind of show that this is sincere and authentic, but I'll tell you what, in most situations, it can have an immediate impact. You'd argue it's a leadership competency, wouldn't you? I mean, it's actually, it's not just a trait, it's a competency you have or don't have. Absolutely, it is, this is a best practice around this core of credibility of intent, which is the trunk of the tree, that is so valuable, so indispensable, and so practical and any leader can start to do it today. They just become mindful, always declare my intent. Give the why behind the what. Open my agenda. I see, another way of looking at it is, open your agenda. Is it, is it your advice where a leader should actually use those words when she or he's having a conversation to open it with, my intent for this meeting today is, or my intent in sharing this news, is that the best Absolutely. words to use? At, yeah, you can out. come up with whatever you want, but. Yeah. But I think those are great words. You say, here's my intent, here's my agenda, here's my motive, here's what I'm trying to do, here's why. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's nothing hidden here. I'm open, I'm transparent, I declare it. And so I like to say, here's my intent for this. And then with, when I'm talking with people and I'm not clear about their intent, I'll often ask them, hey, could you maybe clarify your intent on right. this? That would right. be helpful yeah. to me. And that's a natural discussion and suddenly you have real conversations. So imagine this, if, if on teams, and, and between teams and with people working with each other, what if everybody, as a matter of practice, were to always declare their intent? And then on the other side of it, what if you were to, as a starting point, were to assume positive intent yeah, right. until proven otherwise? Can you imagine Which how much farther? Which is also leadership competency. That's a leadership right? competency you, as well. When you're talking with perhaps someone who works for you, and maybe they haven't declared their intent, or maybe they're not clear on their intent, a competency is to assume good intent. Absolutely it is. In fact, it's a game changer. Does it get you in trouble? What's it can the risk with that? push to the extreme, sure. Yeah. You know, it's just like, can trust get you in trouble? Sure, push to the extreme, it can. You yeah. can get burned. Right. And, and you can assume positive intent to the point where it's not smart anymore. You get burned. Mm -hmm. But, so I like to say, you know, until proven otherwise. If, if, if you assume positive intent and someone consistently takes advantage of you, then I'd quit assuming positive intent. Right. It's yeah. not smart anymore. Don't be a fool, yeah. Yeah, don't be a fool. But, but the flip side, though, is so many times we don't give that benefit of doubt. We don't start with that, and we project and create things that aren't there at all. Mm -hmm. And it's just a better starting point. I learned this from Indra Nui, CEO of PepsiCo, okay. one of the great leaders right. I've ever known. Yes. And she was asked, you know, what is the single greatest lesson in your life? She said, it's what I learned from my father. Always assume positive intent. Whatever anybody says or does, assume positive intent, because you'll be amazed how that changes your whole approach to the, any situation. And, I, and I'm, I'm saying that is a better starting point 95% of the time. Yeah. There might be a few times when it's not smart. Right, right. But I'll tell but you, you what. you generally know, right? You generally I mean, know. Yeah. And, and all I'm saying is, imagine any conversation if both parties are declaring their intent, assuming positive intent. Two teams doing the same. You'll just go so much farther, faster in building trust. The point is trust is learnable. How through your credibility and through your behavior. And these are yeah, some of the keep, cores of credibility. Let's keep going. Okay. Four cores. Integrity, intent. Let's move to capabilities. The line says here, are you relevant? That's a great question. I think about that a lot. 
That's right. Are you relevant? Are you current? Are you learning, growing, improving, getting better, staying relevant? Because if you are, you'll tend to be trusted. But if you're not, if you lose that relevancy, whether with your own people or with the market, then, then uh, you will no longer be credible and you lose the trust with, the, with your people or with the market. I love how uh, General uh, Shinseki mm -hmm. put it. He said, if you don't like change, you're gonna like irrelevance even less. <laughs> and everything is shifting, changing dramatically, so powerfully, we've gotta constantly be improving. And it's the nature of our world today. It's, it's uh, you know, change is the new normal, the new constant. Yeah, and reinventing it, yourself to be yeah, relevant. That's right, because the pace of change, the amount of change, disruptive technology, so you gotta recreate, reinvent, and, and, um, and stay relevant. And it's an ongoing process. You think it's so, important that you listed that as one of the four cores, right? Is constantly challenging and, and re-energizing your relevancy. Yeah, reinventing, recreating, re-energizing, staying relevant. Those are the capabilities. Those are the branches of the tree and the branches see produce the fruits. Let's go to the fruits, results. Uh, what's your track record? Talk about that. The whole idea here is your results is your performance and it's not only your current performance, but your past performance, your track record of results. That gives people confidence. When they look at you, Scott, and they see a track record of results, of performance in this arena, in that arena, this is your track record, that precedes you, it goes in front of you. People say, you're a performer. You delivered over here, you'll deliver over, then I have confidence you're gonna deliver again. It, it gives people confidence. That's what trust is, confidence. And nothing gives people confidence like someone that delivers and performs, especially when they do it in the right way. In other words, with integrity and intent. Yeah, yeah. And they deliver and perform. So your, your results matter enormously to the building of trust. At one level you think, well that's self-evident. But at another level, here's what I find so often. I find that people will often, when they talk about trust, they'll only speak about integrity. And I don't want to downplay integrity because it is the roots of the tree. Right, the first one. Yeah, yeah it's the starting point, it's the foundation. In fact, I'll put it this way. We will never have trust without integrity. And yet, it is possible to have integrity and to not have trust. Mm -hmm. Because you're missing either the results or people right. don't view your capabilities as being relevant yeah. or strong. Someone or, could be honest, right. but not able to deliver. Yeah, It takes all four. That's right, I might right. trust them to watch my home, my apartment if they went on vacation, right? Because they're honest. Yeah. But I might not trust them in the key project, the key client, the key deliverable. They don't have a track record of performing. I need to see the upper half of the tree, the capabilities, the results. That gives me confidence. And when I see that, then, then uh, that confidence you know, carries throughout and I can build trust exceptionally fast. Stephen, share some advice in our final minutes around if to our leaders that perhaps are leaders of a division or a team or a platform or even a company, and they are trying to establish a high trust culture in their company. And one of the great ways is to bring us in and have us consult with them. But if you're thinking about some behaviors that they could go to the office tomorrow morning or back from lunch today, what advice would you give some leaders to say, if you start doing these things, you will see a measurable improvement in the culture of trust in your sphere of influence? Yeah, okay, I'll give you three things. First, um, look in the mirror, start with yourself. That's the key thing, you gotta model it, you gotta lead out with this, yeah. and you gotta go first. Leaders, go first. Someone needs to go first, leaders go first. You, there's a risk in trusting, there's also a risk in not trusting. So, you know, take that risk. But then secondly, I would say, I, I would come back to what we've been talking about. You want a high leverage thing to do? Declare your intent. Because it not only gives people a new lens through how which they will view you, 
it also will be a good test of what your intent really is. Because we'd all be embarrassed to, de to declare self-serving intent. You don't want to make up intent if it's not real. If it's disingenuous, then work on your intent before you declare it. Mm -hmm. If you'd be embarrassed to declare it, then you know, bring more caring to your intent, bring more mutual benefit to it until you would not be embarrassed. So it's a great test. What is my intent? Would I be, would I, would I be embarrassed to declare honestly my intent? If I would not be, if it's really one of mutual benefit, one of caring, then that's a great thing to do, declare it. And it's remarkable. This has an immediate impact. People see you differently, and they, oh, it opens up possibilities. They gain hope of a new possibility, a new option. And so I would do that. I would, you know, so start with yourself. Take the risk. Go first. Declare your intent. There's a risk to do it. And there's a risk not to do it. And then lead, the third thing, lead out in extending trust to other people. Hmm. And find, they will feel that immediately. They feel it immediately. Yeah. Find ways to say, "Look, I'm going to find. I'm going to find ways to trust you," and and um, you know, don't be uh, an entrust um, ifer. You know, mm. you know, the idea of a trust ifer is, if, if I trust or, you if you. Yeah. I'll trust you if you do this, 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 yeah. this. You know, instead, you're be a, a trust intiller. I do trust you. Mm until you give me reasons why I shouldn't. Right. My starting point is trust, and I extend the trust, mm. and find ways to lead out and extend trust to your people, and you know what will happen? They will reciprocate the trust back to you. They'll trust you faster. It's ironic that one of the best ways to create trust is simply to give it, because there's a reciprocity of trust, mm. just like there's a re reciprocity of distrust. Mm -hmm. And when you give it, people receive it and they return it. And you want to increase trust as a leader? Trust your people, trust your team. Find the ways to create that trust. Not only will they give it back to you, they'll be inspired by it, they'll rise to the occasion, they'll perform better. Again, as I said, to be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. It will bring out yeah. the best in our people and they'll perform better. Now look, I'm not naive, Scott. You're I not. I recognize there's always maybe a few people that might abuse the trust. Take advantage. But don't let the 5% of the people who you can't trust to find for you the 95% of the people mm -hmm. who you can. Mm -hmm. It is far better to build your team, your culture around the 95% of the people who you can trust, that that culture crowd out, That's weed out advice. the violators versus other great advice, people who also have been burned, legitimately, who are, you know, who yeah. are um, more cautious about it. Yeah, can I give you one example yeah. on this? Warren Buffett, you know, everyone knows Warren Buffett is, you know, great investor right. and, right. and um, uh, you know, track record over 50 years of great results and great integrity. So he's, he's seen as a high trust leader. Mm -hmm. What they don't know about him is his operating style. He's not just a great investor, he's an operator. He, he acquires companies, they run as autonomous units. He's acquired some 77 companies. He has 77 direct reports. How do you manage 77 people? You do it with trust. So he trusts his people. They actually call it the operating philosophy of Berkshire Hathaway. Hmm. Deserved trust. Hmm. My, my word for it would be smart trust. His word is deserved trust. Mm -hmm. It's a similar idea. It's saying it's not just a blind trust. Right. It's a deserved trust. You've earned Clear expectations, yeah. clear accountability to the yeah. trust being given. But here's the thing. A few years ago, one of his 77 direct reports did something bad, and, and um, you know, he ended up having to let him go mm -hmm. and, and the like. And so he got burned. But here's the interesting thing about Warren Buffett. He didn't allow that one who burned him to define the other 76 mm -hmm. and how he viewed them. He stayed trusting the other 76 and he managed that situation, but 
too often people allow that person that burns you to now affect how I view the other the pool, people. Yeah. And I view them with distrust. No, he stayed with this deserved trust. Well, the culture was so much bigger than the one person, right? The yeah. standard was so Yeah, high. and these were all independent autonomous right. companies, but right. the point is, this is his operating philosophy. And yeah, there's a risk to trust people. I know that, you know that, our, our viewers know that. And there's also a risk to not, not trust trusting, people. Yeah. And I think not trusting in today's world, a collaborative, interdependent world filled with millennials and multiple generations, I think not trusting is the greater risk. Stephen, a few weeks ago, I interviewed one of your brothers, Sean Covey, yeah. who works in the firm, like you, a prolific author, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, co-authored our book on execution. And I asked him, what was his fondest memory of, his, of your dad, Stephen Covey? And, and what impact did your dad have on Sean? And he mentioned uh, that he remembers how much your dad affirmed him. It was the word he used. And since then, I've been using that a lot in my own life. I've been making yeah. sure that I have been intentionally affirming my three boys. Same question to you. When you think about the legacy your dad left on you, do you have a memory of, of uh, what you remember most about your dad's impact on you? Yeah. Um, so many memories, including what Sean just said, um, affirming, you know, and, and you know well the, my father's favorite definition for leadership mm-hmm. is, is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that, that they, they come to see, see it, it in themselves. themselves. And that's affirming and believing in people, seeing the best in people. There's no question he did that for me, for my brothers and sisters, um, and with really everyone he worked with and he was around. Um, also, I would say that he had a, a gift of, you know, he, he was able to influence the many, but his greatest gift was with the one. It's kind of a rare combination, and, and uh, is that, you know, he spoke and he influenced many people with his teachings, his ideas, his thoughts, and yet his greatest strength was one-on-one. And, and so I just remember this as a, as a young boy growing up, um, having conversations with my dad. He was an extraordinary listener, listener truly an empathic listener. Right, massive empathy. Right. And, he, and, and that's a great uh, leadership trait, empathy. Um, and and, um, uh, and he, he, he modeled that constantly. And I remember that's another way of affirming somebody. It's another way of building trust with somebody and validating them. It's psychological error to understand another person. And he was maybe the most empathic listener I've ever known, my father. And to have that as a father is a remarkable thing. He modeled empathy and, and listening in he, you. He modeled it not as a technique, but as, a, as an expression of who he was. Mm-hmm. It was his core. And, and, um, and and then I would just say um, um, uh, his ongoing uh, kindness, uh, respect. I'll run into people all the time that will say, can I tell you the story about your dad? And, and they'll just describe, you know, we were on this thing, he had to run, and I came up to him and I just talked with him and, and, and he looked me in the eye and, and they say, I felt like I was the only person in his life I get stories like this all the time where, you know, he, he really felt like his greatest contribution was one-on-one. And, and, um, and we felt that as kids, and I think that those that worked with him felt that as well. I see the same in you. 
I mean that to be a sincere compliment. You share the name, but I think you also share a lot of those characteristics because I would say to someone else who asked me about you, I would say, Stephen makes you uh, authentically feel like you're the only person in the room. I think it's a great attribute Thank that you. you have as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. Maybe there's some osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know. Or just you both have aligned to common principles of how to live your life, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, because the principle is respect and kindness and caring. And, and uh, that builds trust. Yeah. And that's a great dimension of leadership. So simple, so basic, so profound, and yet uncommon. Stephen, say hi to your wife. Say hi to your mom and your family. Thanks for joining us. We'll have you back in a couple more months and talk more about building a high trust culture. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you as always. And thank you all for joining us on Leadership. We'll see you back next week with another exciting guest. Thanks so much.